Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, so happy to have your company. Thanks so much for being with me this hour. Lots coming up for you. We're going to hear from one of the most popular singers of the 80s who's still living off her greatest hit. On that treadmill and you're working for a company like Capitol Records, they are Kellogg's and you are cornflakes. We had no idea how much work it was going to entail, especially for me. I couldn't believe how much talking I had to do. More from Katrina and the Waves soon. We'll also check in with Australia's favourite boy band, Human Nature, who've just scored another residency in Las Vegas and are about to head out on a major tour. But first to our new music wrap-up, and this week featuring singer-songwriter Jerry Beckley, who co-founded the band America. Jerry's all set to release his fourth solo album next month. It's called Aurora. I'm hoping to get Jerry onto the show within the next few weeks, but meantime, take a listen to the single Friends Are Hard To Find. You play me your song, I'll play you mine. Mine's okay, but yours sure sounds fine You know, buddy, I don't mind Cause friends are hard to find If I should stumble, if I should fall If I should find my back against a wall There is no doubt about who I'd call Cause friends are hard to listening, isn't it? I'm looking forward to bringing you more from Jerry Beckley very soon. Also making news this week is a new one from Irish-born singer Gilbert O'Sullivan called Driven. It features Simply Red's Mick Hucknall and Scottish singer KT Tunstall. Here's the first single. Love. What have you got? Half of what you thought of as being a lot In your mind a pleasure dome Use a spell on me from the start When you see what it does when it's in your heart Take love Watch it as it soars Nothing like it to bring you up That's the reason if you come on star Take love Take love Take love Take love from Gilbert O'Sullivan with KT Tunstall The album comes out in July. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Now, my next guest has the reputation of being a guitarist's guitarist. He's sold more than 10 million albums, has been nominated 15 times for Grammy Awards and is well known for being part of the band Chickenfoot with former Van Halen frontman Sammy Hager and Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Chad Smith. New York born and raised, Joe Satriani has just released his 19th studio album and it's a beauty. It's called The Elephants of Mars and Joe's pretty confident that he's managed to get his message across despite the fact that the album is entirely instrumental. Hi, how you doing? Good to see your eyes. No glasses. No <laughs> need to right. look cool today. The funny story behind wearing glasses is that I surprised my band one year 
when I showed up at the sound check for the beginning of a tour and I'd shaved my head. I just didn't tell anybody about it. And they, they just couldn't take it. They just, they were like, no, no, it's like, <laughs> what happened? You know? And I said, no, this is the way it's going. This is how I'm going to deal with losing my hair and everything. And when I had walked on stage, initially I had a hat on and I had these, you know, glasses like this. Uh -huh. And so they said, no, you got to put the glasses back on. We can't, we can't look at you and, and not laugh while we're doing the show. <laughs> so as a joke, as we were walking out to do the show that night, I put the glasses on. And I'd never performed with sunglasses on ever, but I put the glasses on and I walked out and I felt this other thing happen from the audience. Like they took me more seriously because I somehow looked mysterious, the shaved head and the glasses. And I thought, oh, this is something important. So <laughs> I left them on for the whole night. And after that, they were like, you're stuck with that look. <laughs> And you've and been I, doing I, that I, ever I, since. Yeah. And I liked it because it really did uh, protect my eyes from the, the bright lights. And I could see what I was playing if I needed to. And I thought, oh, this is really great. And uh, but everybody thinks it's because I'm trying to be cool. But actually, you know, started out as a joke. Oh, that's a great story. And Rabina, your wife is happy with the shaved head. Off. She's had no choice. But the day that I did it uh, was really funny. Typical family situation you never hear about. I didn't tell them. I was out jogging one day and the wind in San Francisco, my hair is blowing in my face. And I stopped at this corner and I looked inside uh, the window of, uh, of a pharmacy and they had a sale on clippers. And I just thought, OK, this is a sign. So I went and I got the clippers. I went home. I shaved half of my head. Right. And then I called my wife and my son in and I said, hey, guys, look, I got a, you know, a new haircut. And they they looked at me. And of course, facing them was the part that had hair. And they were like, what? And then I turned the other way. And of course, it was a very wonderful, funny family moment. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And, and uh, oh. then I shaved the rest of it. <laughs> Gorgeous. Joe, is your, is your son following in your musical footsteps too? My son uh, is uh, 29 years old. He's a filmmaker uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, he is a, a good musician, a, a dancer, which I am not. And he's been making films and videos with me for years. Our documentary film from a few years ago, Beyond the Supernova, is just this week available on iTunes and Amazon Prime. I'm excited to have a look at that. And congratulations <laughs> on this album. I've heard a few tracks already. You've really gone out on a big limb for this, haven't you? I hope so. I, you know, I put it to myself to be a better guitarist, a better writer, better arranger, and everything. Everybody delivered stunning performances on the album. And you've got an awesome cast playing on here, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. The, the one and only Kenny Aronoff on drums. We were touring with Chicken Foot and then we did an Experience Hendrix tour in 2019. He did a great job. And Australia's very own Ray Thistlethwaite from Thirsty Merc oh, yeah. has graced my album with his amazing musical chops. And he'll be out on tour with us later this year. Joe Satriani, you were highly influenced by the likes of Jimi Hendrix, weren't you? Tell yeah. me, Tell me what happened to you the day that you found out that Jimi died. I was devastated. I was a young kid that had been studying the drums since I was about nine and then had finally given up after three or four years and really got into the music that my older siblings kept bringing home and, and making me listen to. And Hendrix was my number one. I was a super fan of his guitar playing and his music. suited up to play football and a teammate came up and said hey sorry to tell you but I heard on the news that that guy you like Jimi Hendrix passed away I was devastated so I just 
turned around and took off my gear, told the coach I was quitting to be a guitarist. And later that night over the dinner table, I announced it to the family. And it was Mick Jagger who actually brought you to prominence, wasn't it? Wow, that was a wonderful meeting just to get a chance to audition for Mick at the very beginning of my career as a solo artist. I'd only been doing it for about two weeks. It wasn't going very well, even though I had a a record, Surfing with the Alien, that was on the charts and it was heading up the charts. I still, as a live act, I was completely unproven. And while the tour was kind of faltering, I did get a call to audition for Mick Jagger, which I thought, I'll never get it. I'm nobody. I don't look right. I'm in the middle of doing this instrumental thing. What what does he want with me, right? But the audition went really well. He invited me into the band right there on the spot. And that whole year, anytime I needed any help, he was there to say, what can I do? He gave me a spot in the middle of the shows to do a little bit of soloing. It was really great. And of course, I got to play with him and he's amazing. And uh, he was just as amazing offstage. I've never worked with anyone who loved his fans more. saw the same thing in you that that fans all over the world have seen for some time. You tend to mix it up a bit, don't you? From the blues to hard rock, from banjo to musical tapping. Is it because you just like exploring all these different genres? Well, you're right about that. I do like exploring. I grew up with, you know, jazz age parents who love to listen to jazz and classical all the time. And I wound up with this amazing record collection. As my parents and my sisters and my brother would get tired of albums, they just say, do you want them? And I'd be like, yeah. (laughs) I loved all of it. I mean, I would listen to Beethoven and Miles Davis and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Beatles and Dave Clark Five and Hendrix and The Who and Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. I just, I loved all of it. And what's evolved from you since sort of takes on different shades depending on what phase you're in. Yeah, you you can't really predict how you feel day to day and what you're going to feel compelled to write about. This album has got stuff that is heartbreaking and whimsical back to back. But I guess that's just the way we are as human beings. We swing around all the time. Emotions are crazy and life is tough. And it's a good thing we have music to help us get through it. example of one of the songs tell us what you're writing about well there's a song that i keep people keep asking me about the title and it's an address in new york city so 104th street you know east 104th street uh, in new york city 1973 is like a midpoint that i picked i had to represent this address where my father was born and raised the neighborhood used to be called spanish harlem i think it still is but when i was a little kid i'd be there every weekend visiting relatives and new york city was a wonderland for a little kid. But as I got older and I was a guitar player and teenager, the city became a place to get in all kinds of great trouble, have fun. And as a musician, I started playing in the city. I also started, though, because I was becoming a grown-up, I was noticing how tough New York City was, how rough life was for so many people. So I wanted to reflect upon my journey as a little kid all the way to 19 when I left what it was like. 4.15 in the morning, you're on a stage in a club, they finally close the doors, and you're hanging there with your musician friends, and this is kind of like what you would play. What 
told me to write that one day, I have no idea, but it happened really fast and I did one performance and that's it. And that's what's on the album. How come never any lyrics? Why are you sticking so much to instrumentals? You don't like your voice? Oh, <laughs> that's a couple of things. I don't really have a voice, you know, I can sing. But the last time I tried singing, it was pretty traumatic because I was in Chicken Foot and we were in the studio recording some background vocals. And when we all start singing, the engineer keeps saying, okay, uh, you know, Mike, can you stand uh, about two feet back? Okay, Sam, can you stand? Okay, Joe, can you move forward? I'm like two inches away, you know, and Sammy Hagar is like way over here. And I, and you know, it's just because my voice is like this big and Sammy's voice is like a Mack truck coming down the highway. Right. <laughs> Once again, I realized that I can sing, but I don't have a singer's voice. So it takes an incredible talent though, to impart what lyrics would purely instrumentally. And yet you manage to get all those feelings through. I try. I mean, that is the quest, isn't it? It's really hard if you're doing a song like Face if you had lyrics, you could really express in one sentence the feeling of the song about people not seeing the real you and feeling faceless. But how do you do that when you don't have those words? So it takes a lot of concentration and you have to remove things from your playability. You have to learn to choose what do I play just for this meaning just for this song, just for these four beats, what should I eliminate? And that's really what it's about, is learning how to eliminate 99% of what you're capable of and focusing on what is actually needed for this particular moment. just kept thinking about that one feeling of wanting to be seen for who you really are and that not happening. And, and I thought about it on a micro level, like you're across from the person you love the most and you, you feel like you're not being seen or heard or recognized. It's a lonely feeling in a way. I also wanted to make sure in that song that there was a moment where the person gets to break out and express themselves. So I used the solo section to change the key a little bit and to be more hopeful as that person feels they're blossoming out. But of course, it falls apart in the end and he goes back to that small voice. Nice guy, Joe Satriani. There sure is a lot of feeling in those fingers. Stick with me. Up next, we're heading to London to chat with Katrina Leskinich. You know her better as Katrina from Katrina and the Waves. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks so much for hanging in. I really hope you're enjoying what I'm bringing. Call me one hit wonder. Curse me to the day I die. One hit wonder. I hit the blunt and just wonder. Now, my next guest would have to be one of the most popular one-hit wonders of the 80s. It's obviously been a while between releases for Katrina Leskinich, but she's still basking in the glory of the song that made the world smile. Who am I talking about? Well, how about if I play you this? on Sunshine from 80s British-American rock band Katrina and the Waves. 
Hi, Sandy. It's Katrina. Hello, Katrina. How are you? Yeah, really well. I'm very surprised to hear you with an American accent still. You never lost that. Well, I guess that's the way I feel about myself, Sandy. I'm kind of, uh, I'm stuck with this accent. It's never changed. I hear you. If it's okay with you, can we take a little bit of a step back and reflect on your career? Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. There's a lot that I didn't know about you. I certainly didn't know you'd actually come from the US, that you grew up on the West Coast and you'd been inspired by various Motown and girl groups that gave you the desire to sing in the first place. Yeah, well, what happened was I was born right smack dab in the middle of America in Topeka, Kansas, and that's because my parents met there. And my father was in the Air Force, and he was stationed in an Air Force base in Kansas for a few years. But thereafter, we moved every two years. And then in 1973, Germany, a couple of years later, Holland, and then in 1976, England. So it's kind of meant that I've lived a very transient life, and I've always been inside a bubble of some sort, like... Like when you're an Air Force brat, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you are very much in, inside a bubble because all these places you go, you don't really end up taking on the, the culture or the lifestyle or embedding yourself. You tend to kind of retreat in a way. And that's very much what it's like being in a band. You're in a bubble with a few other people and your manager, and that's it. You just go around in your little bubble. And, you know, I was very comfortable with that. And I still am. I've got a very, very small network of people that I socialize with. And it's usually just about a few people in the music business. about how you got to be Katrina in the waves. I was in 1976 living in England and because there were six of us kids, my parents needed a Sunday morning so they could lie in and have a little bit of peace and do whatever couples do. So they made sure that their children hightailed it up to the, the church and joined the church choir. And that's where I met Vince Delacruz, who was also from an enormous Catholic family. And he was a guitar player. And he said, well, it sounds like you can sing. Why don't we put a band together? So I was still in high school and we put a band together with his little brother and another friend from high school. We were called Mama's Cookin'. And we managed to make a living doing that in between I was working at the chow hall on the base and I washed dishes for five years. Vince and I thought we would go and live in Texas, start a band there. I got a phone call from an English guy that I heard you're a good singer. I'm trying to put a band together and our band is called The Waves. I was always going to be a singer. There was no wow. doubt about that. Five years of washing dishes was just to pay the bills while I was trying to make wow. it in the, in the music business. So when I got together with The Waves, we made some demos and some of the guys we were working with said, wow, she get the girl to sing everything because it's really hot to have a girl singer. Call it Katrina and the Waves so people know there's a girl. And that's really why we ended up doing that. Katrina, were you writing material then? Because the first break that you had was an album that you put out of original material and the Bangles ended up covering it, didn't they?
wasn't writing for the band. That was left to fellow band members Kimberly Rue and Vince Dela Cruz. It was a huge adjustment for the band to deal with the fame. The success is great because it means you're making a living doing it and you can be a professional musician. But the fame thing, nah, we, you know, we never got into it because I want to be famous. It was never like that. We just wanted to just play music. So how did you handle it? Apart from having to learn to speak and be articulate and create opinions of my own, because, you know, when I was 24, and we had our first hit, I, I didn't even know what I thought about anything because I'd been living in that bubble for such a long time. Did you manage and to keep it. your feet on the ground? Yeah, I definitely did. And I'll tell you how. It's because I was in that bubble with two guys from England, highly educated. They were just very, very practical. Vince and I certainly made up for the, the other side of things where we were completely feral and random. We just wanted to play, party, rock out, and just be in a band. Sunshine had been recorded many times because people kept saying that the song had something or it had an annoyance factor, which they used to use as an identifier for a hit back in the day. So we had several attempts to record it. But Walking on Sunshine hadn't been identified as the first hit or single. We sent out a demo with four songs on it to all the radio stations. Uh -huh. And they said, oh, it's the fourth song on here. It's it's the it's the Sunshine song. That's the one we want. And of course, for us, we thought Walking on Sunshine was a novelty song. But what we didn't realize is how well it was going to work for radio, especially in the mid 80s when it was Partyville. And it was just it was crazy times. People were, yeah. you know, spend, 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 party, party, party. You said uh, it was written by Kimberly. Uh, what was he writing about? Was there a personal note to Walking on Sunshine? He always wanted to write from what he thought was my perspective, which is probably why at the time he was writing for a very young woman. So it's very innocent. It's very boy meets girl. It's nothing challenging about it. And he just wanted a, a course that was going to be really effervescent and exuberant and show a real joy about what it's like to be in love. So, you know, I think mission accomplished. Yeah. It's an impossible beat to dance to. I've uh, personally witnessed an awful lot of very, very bad dancing to Walking on Sunshine. <laughs> but the, everyone's forgiven. My advice to everyone is just jump up and down. It's okay. <laughs> That's very funny. How surprised by its incredible success were you? To go from bagging groceries and washing dishes for five years and schlubbing around it because we didn't, we'd never had a hit before and we didn't know what was going to happen next. We didn't realize that when you're on that treadmill and you're working for a company like Capitol Records, they are Kellogg's and you are cornflakes. And we, we had no idea how much work it was going to entail, especially for me. I, I couldn't believe how much talking I had to do. The song was even covered by Dolly Parton, wasn't it? Yeah, Dolly used it. She opened a, a lot of shows with it. Well, I used to think maybe. And she, yeah, she did it with violins and the whole southern shebang. How long did you ride the crest of that wave for? Oh, still am. <laughs> Are you kidding? It's still going. It's incredible. I never thought there would be such a high regard for 80s music or fashion or the time. And it just doesn't seem to go away. People still want to hear that song. They're still playing it at bar mitzvahs, funerals, weddings. Course, it's incredible. Yeah. So why did Katrina and the Waves break up then? 
Right after we won the Eurovision Song Contest with a song called Love Shine a Light in 1997. definitely plucked out of the the pack and the bubble broke. There's a complete clash about what we should do after that because the Eurovision Song Contest is uh, quite an extraordinary thing to win and your career will be forever changed after it. And what I decided to do after the win was calm things down and try a few other things apart from the usual routine of record tour record tour record tour. I think it was probably time. I believe you got busy writing a couple of books after that. Yeah, I wrote some photographic books that involved my little poodle, Peggy Lee Loves London, and another book about Cornwall. did some more writing and released some albums and did a lot of touring. And that's pretty much what I've continued to do, Sandy, is just kind of keep that going. Katrina, are you as mad about your poodle as I am about mine? Have you got a poodle? I've got a little Bichon toy poodle and I'm besotted. Are you the same? Yeah, and they're just incredible animals. Could work on introducing Peggy Lee to Charlie, huh? Yeah, she's been sequestered into the the bedroom. If I talk a lot doing interviews, she tends to fall asleep and then you get the snoring. It's not good for my confidence, for my self-esteem, Sandy. (laughs) You know, I'm pouring my heart out here and you hear in the background. (laughs) The dog snoring. She's heard it all before. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, no, not that story about walking on sunshine again. Kill me now. That's very cute. How come you never formed another band? Right. I did form a band. I'm officially called Katrina from Katrina and the Waves. The boys I've been working with now for about 20 years, and we've never really named them. I just sort of casually call them my English boys. They're more like anonymous background guys, and they let me just, you know, be the dirty ham that I am. Well, this latest single that you're putting out called Holiday, you wrote for your album Hearts, Loves and Babies. I love the title. Tell us a little bit about Holiday. I wanted to write something joyful and anthemic, but I wanted it to resonate with now. It's about real things. There are little issues buried inside the lyrics, but I wanted it to be camouflaged with a sing-along chorus. But underneath it is a deeper message. Okay, this is definitely going to be my last album. But then you can't help but think, oh, God, wow, that's a good idea for a song. And then all of a sudden you're writing down lyrics and then you're talking about making another record. So I guess it's in my blood. Yeah. Katrina, thank you so much for sharing your time and stories. You're a great person, Sandy. I really enjoyed this. You've woken me up now. I'm going to have to go and have a beer. I'm sitting here in my underwear and my T-shirt. I'm supposed to go to bed now because i got to get up early and go for my Uh, swim, don't you know? I'm the sunshine gal, Sandy. You are the sunshine girl, Katrina. Great meeting you. Take care. Thank you, Sandy. The album Hearts, Loves and Babies by Katrina from Katrina and the Waves is out now. And as you may have already gathered, Katrina is still very much the rock and roll girl from the 80s, despite having recently turned 62. Saturday night at the movies Who cares what picture you see When you're hugging with your baby 
streaming time again with media critic Alan Craig. Hi, Alan. Hi, Sandy. Hi, everyone. And a big welcome back to you. Glad to see you're fully recovered. Now, you went to see Everything Everywhere All at Once. What a weird movie. It was a very weird movie. Very, very different. It's essentially the story of the Wang family, who are Chinese-Americans running a laundry mat and struggling with the normal issues that many battling families struggle with. It starts off, you think, as a sort of normal, warm story about this family, and then it goes in some very weird and fascinating and interesting directions. It certainly does. I completely lost patience with it. It turns into this science fiction epic, which I wasn't prepared for. Well, it's essentially a simple story told in a very complicated way. And interestingly, some of the critics um, are agreeing with your view. They're saying that while they thought the film was interesting, they really struggled to keep up with it. It's classified as a science fiction, dark comedy, but interestingly, a whole new genre called multiverse, where different things are happening in different universes all at once. Some amazing performances in this film, though, and a very interesting take. Yeah, Michelle Yeoh stars as the protagonist, the woman who runs the laundromat, and her support cast is very strong. But in my opinion, it was just try hard. Well, it's certainly different. So I imagine a lot of people are going to have a similar response to yours. It's a new way of storytelling. I'm not sure it works. For a start, it's too long, and it's certainly very complicated. It is hard to follow. But once it sort of clicks and you get it, it comes back to a very simple message, which is try and understand other people from where they're at, from what they're going through. I think a lot of millennials will really get off on this. Action aplenty, if that's what you're interested in. Mm. Look, it's saved by the outstanding performances. Go along, have a look at it. Be fascinated to know what the audience think. Mm. Or don't, as I found out. Thanks for your time today, Alan. Oh, look, my pleasure, Sandy. Thanks, everyone. Stay tuned. Up next, one of Australia's most popular quartets that the world just can't get enough of. This is A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for being here. If you're a regular listener, you probably already know that it's at this time that we hand the reins over to you. You get to hear from the artists that you'd like to. And it's pretty easy. All you have to do is message me and ask me who you'd like me to find. This week it's Arlo's turn. She's messaged from Launceston in Tasmania, asking if I could bring one of the guys from Australia's favourite boy band, Human Nature, onto the show for her. Human Nature are four guys who met at school in Sydney who are known for their incredible harmonies and lively stage performances. These guys have spent over a decade in residency in Las Vegas. So joining me on the eve of their Australian tour now is Phil Burton. I started by asking Phil whether the rumours about him leaving the band were true. No, that's not true at all. You know, I've left human nature when it comes to shows in Las Vegas. You know, the guys have just announced just the other day a new residency in Las Vegas, which they're doing about three or four shows a month from August through to the end of the year. And I'm not involved in that. That's just the three of them. But that was always the plan. And when it comes to Australia and anywhere else, I'm involved at still all four of us. So the upcoming tour is very much all four of the original members of human nature on stage. People get ready. Now it's coming. Oh, thank the Lord. People get ready. There's a train coming. You don't need no baggage just to get on board. All you need is faith. I that diesel humming. You don't need no ticket. No, no, just thank the Lord. Oh, come on to your people. Get ready, people get ready. Come on, people. People get ready. Oh, people get ready. Are you surprised at how much in demand you are in Vegas? When you went there in the first place, you would have never expected it to last. Well, I mean, this is like the 12th year, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, when we first got there, well, I mean, we obviously had grand ambitions to conquer Vegas and the US, but we were very realistic about how it was going to start. So we didn't want to go there and spend millions of dollars launching this super fabulous production show. We wanted to go there and just let our talent speak for itself 
put on a good show, of course, with some good production and a great band, but be more about that classic entertainment of great singing, great dancing, good music. So for us, we started slowly and we started small and built and built and built from there. So we never had a problem that we were investing too much money in the show and we were going to lose it all because we didn't really invest much in the show in the first place. So yes, we took a risk going over there, but it was a very calculated one and it paid off slowly over the first few years. It built up and up and up and became a huge success. So it paid off. about human nature that American audiences and in particular uh, Vegas audiences can't seem to get enough of? Well, I think a lot of it's to do with the reputation now. Having been the group been there over, for 12 years now, there is a reputation that human nature does put on a good show. So that can speak volumes, I guess, when it comes to word of mouth around Vegas. We really learned that word of mouth is a huge seller. Um, you know, we would go to concierges and tell them about our show and that was one of the things because when people come to town, that's their first port of call. They go to the hotel and they say, so tell us what's good, what can we yeah. see? Right. So if you can have your show have a reputation of being good, then everyone in town's talking about you. Oh, human nature, you should go see them, they're great. Yeah. And th I think that was a great thing for us is just that building up that reputation and I think that is still there. Did you offer the concierges free tickets to come and see the show so that they could recommend you firsthand or did they just believe you because you were sweet, uh, sweet Aussies? <laughs> there are all sorts of deals that go on in Vegas as far as tickets goes. Yeah, of course, you, you do give tickets so that these people can see it themselves. So even things like having a concierge night where you would have the concierges come and you would do a show just for them. The taxi drivers, you know, you'd go to the taxi companies in Vegas and you would give them free tickets to give to all their drivers because... Wow. The drivers would then tell the tourists on their way to the hotel from the airport. Ah, so very sneaky. you're basically <laughs> telling everybody and you're trying, yeah, trying as hard as you can. Vegas, the, the amount of performances that there are on any given night, I think is almost 100. So you have to make sure that you are making a lot of noise for your show or else you will literally disappear in the rubble. The expression we heard was you got to bark like a big dog. to have an Australian accent and to be Australian? In Australia or in Vegas? No, in, in America. Completely. Yeah, people would say it to us all the time. Oh, I could just listen to you talk all day. In Australia here, I think it's something like the Irish accent. People love hearing the Irish accent all day. So whereas over in Ireland, they'd be like, what, you want to listen to me talk? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Phil, you, you settled back into Sydney. What are you doing when human nature is not in talk? Well, I'm looking at, um, at some point after the end of this Australian tour that we're doing, I'll be looking at doing some of my own shows. For me, doing like club shows and things like that, I would really enjoy to get out there and do that 
In the meantime, we're going to have all four of you on the road. That's right. I know. We did a couple of months of touring last year, thinking that we would be carrying through to, towards the end of last year, but it turned out we only did two months and then were shut down for lockdowns. So we've actually put on extra shows on this run as well. So we're not only going back to the places we missed last year, but we're adding new shows as well. And we're up to around 70 shows in three and a half months. So yeah, we're getting right out there. most about Australia when you were in residence in Las Vegas? I think the main thing I missed was family. What about the food? We loved some of the food that you could get in Vegas, particularly Mexican. In Australia, Thai food is almost ubiquitous. In America, and particularly in Vegas, it's Mexican food that's everywhere. But at the same time, there's something about Aussie food and Aussie service in restaurants. It's it's not so much the top end. It's that middle thing where you can just go to any restaurant, basically in Sydney or in Melbourne, and get a nice meal. In America, the top end was great, but in the middle, there isn't much there. It's pretty cheap and nasty when it's like undercooked pizza or it's overcooked noodles. And and what about when you go on the road to all the little country towns across Australia? You know, I'm actually really pleasantly surprised just how good quality things are in regional towns. I don't know, maybe it's an ethic in Australia in general where people, they want to be great at what they're doing. So they want their food to be great. They want their coffee to be awesome. They're not just doing it for the catch. They've got a passion for it. What are we going to see and hear from Human Nature on tour? This show is very different for us. It's much more intimate. There's just four of us and one musician on stage. We are telling a whole bunch of stories about our career from start to now, why we did certain things, why we recorded certain songs, where it took us. So for us, it's a really great chance to tell the audience basically every step of the human nature career and a good chance to look back on what we've done. Yeah, well, the opportunity to see you in an up-close and personal setting is pretty rare. I've seen you in arena settings and and you pack them out and people just can't get close enough to you. So That's true. It works the same for us in return too. We really love being that close to an audience as well. Phil, (laughs) pick one of your favourite songs and and spin me the yarn that you would tell people in uh, one of those intimate settings. Well, one of the songs that I really like performing on stage is um, the Beatles cover, I Got to Get You Into My Life. We actually didn't record a version until 2008 on a symphony record. But before then, the first time we sang it was with Sir George Martin, who is known as the fifth Beatle. Right. He recorded, he, he produced all of those Beatles records. We actually got a chance to be singers on stage with him conducting a symphony orchestra doing classic Beatles songs and one of them was Got to Get You Into My Life. So that was an experience that we still talk about today of being able to be on stage with the fifth beat. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there. Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there. Ooh, then I suddenly see you. Ooh, did I tell
when we first recorded the, these covers of Motown and Jukebox songs, they were almost as if they were new to a new audience. And I think that's going to happen with those songs over and over again for the next couple of hundred years. And how do you feel about keeping that tag, the, the boy band? You guys are getting a little <laughs> bit older now. You, you haven't turned into the man band. You're still a boy band. We so- never wanted to be a boy band. We, when we first got together, that, that term suddenly came up on us and was like, what's a boy band? And it had kind of negative connotations back in the 90s. It felt like, you know, that there was some kind of Svengali manager putting it all together and pulling the strings in the background, which was very much not our story at all. We met at high school and were very much in control of our own career. So we fought against it so hard. But now that we look back, it was like, you know what? Yeah, we were a boy band. We sang the same songs and looked a lot the same as groups like NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys. And now, you know, now that we're in our late 40s, if you want to call us boys, it's a compliment, really. <laughs> I love it. Phil Burton, what song should we go out on? How about a Human Nature classic? Was This was a song that really kicked off our career. It's called Wishes. Right. We play that for you now. Phil Burton, Human Nature, all the very, very best for this tour. It's terrific to have you back in the country. And thanks for your time. Thank you, Sandy. local listings to catch human nature on tour and don't forget if you'd like me to find someone for you just send me a message through the website a breath of fresh air that's a breath of fresh air.com.au and that's where i'll leave you today with a quote from gilbert o'sullivan who once said do what you want to within reason but remember take your time nothing stops for those who can't afford to wait Mm, that makes sense to me I hope you'll join me again same time next week. Take care meantime, won't you? See you then. Because it's a beautiful day. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.